Welcome to Rare Book School, week four. Our speaker this evening is Daniel Traster, who has spoken from this podium annually uh, for many years in connection with Rare Book School. He is curator of research services at the University of Pennsylvania. Daniel Traster is the best read person that I have ever met, and I have only to suppose that he has read the authors about whom he is talking this evening. Daniel Traster. Some of them, anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about what my real theme is uh, in the course of the prepared text that I'm going to read from. But that theme in the text itself is confined to specifically American writers. And simply because of an accident of chronology, and that is the death two weeks ago uh, on July 13th, now practically two and a half weeks ago, of a poet whom I suspect very few of us know. Um, I'm inclined to remark that my theme really is broader than that of American literature alone. The poet who died on July 13th was a person named Alec Derwent Hope. He was born in Tasmania in 1905 and died in Sydney on the 13th of this month. He is very little read, although not entirely unread. In fact, at the Columbia University Rare Book Library, some of the limited editions of his poems in copies that have Lionel Trilling's provenance are preserved. Um, but aside from Trilling and very, very few other people I've met, almost no one has read him. Uh, I think he's a very good poet. His death was preceded by three weeks by another poet just about equally unknown and just as Australian as he, a person named Judith Wright, who was just a tad younger than he, born in 1915, died in uh, June of the year 2000. And in a sort of unplanned homage, I want to read one very short poem by Judith Wright, which actually does relate in a funny kind of way to my talk. It's a section called To My Generation from a larger poem called For a Pastoral Family. A certain consensus of echo, a sanctioning sound, supported our childhood lives. We stepped on sure and conceded ground. A whole society extended a comforting cover of legality. The really deplorable deeds had happened out of our sight, allowing us innocence. We were not born, or there was silence kept. If now there are landslides, if our field of reference is much eroded, our hands show little blood. We enter a plea, not guilty, for the good of the old country. The land was taken. The empire had loyal service. Would any convict us? Our plea has been endorsed by every appropriate jury. 
If my poetic style, your pastoral produce, are challenged by shifts in the market or a change of taste, at least we can go down smiling with enough left in our pockets to be noted in literary or local histories. That by way of chronologically appropriate, I hope, prologue. I'm impressed by the often capricious and arbitrary ways in which objects we collect and valorize in the cultural arena seem to float in and out of significance or importance, impinge on our collective awareness and make themselves seem collectible. What strikes me is how much such movement, even with respect to books, to literature, looks quite suspiciously akin to what, in a different arena, we dismiss as mere fashion. We don't usually think about such matters, really, who needs to. We collect Shakespeare because, well, who needs to ask? Perhaps if we worked at the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library at UCLA, where a major collecting strength is John Dryden, we might have occasion to ask such questions more frequently. Yes, Dryden is not Shakespeare. No argument there. The same could be said of every other author, of course, but that's merely obvious and hence not very interesting. Dryden, however, is an utterly canonical restoration poet, dramatist, and critic a writer about whom a magnate could, once upon a time, have thought it well worth the effort to create a major collection. Or so he was, even back when I was in graduate school, which was late Mesozoic. Nonetheless, in the month of May in the year 2000, C18L, a bulletin board for restoration and 18th century English literature students and scholars, carried an ongoing discussion about why Dryden doesn't get taught or read much anymore. Oh, tempora, oh, mores, Dryden, the first of England's poets laureate, a great chain that begins with Dryden, runs through Shadwell, Tate, and Rowe, and ends up with, well, whoever the current incumbent might be. I hope some of you here know um, each communicant who wishes port will please inform the acolytes before matins, a mnemonic which gives you the poet's laureate of England from a don't stop the retreat, each communicant who wishes port, gives you the poet's laureate from Dryden through Macefield. Um, it's extremely useful as a list of really bad poets. <laughs> how the mighty have fallen, or perhaps less apocalyptically, how fortune's wheel has turned. Turned, that is, with an effect strikingly like what, in a different connection, one might call fashion. Once indisputably in, Dryden, it would seem, is now, if not yet indisputably, on the way out. For research librarians charged not only with preserving existing, but also with creating new collections, the implicit message 
of what I've just said may seem extremely dispiriting. What really is the use of any effort we might make to maintain an old or worse, to try to initiate a new collecting field for our institutions? If even Clark and his presumably well-paid minions and advisors guessed, in effect, wrong about John Dryden's importance and longevity, and if they did so more than two centuries after his death in 1700, and with Clark's hefty wallet able to back up any choice they had made, well, what then is the likelihood that we will guess right about the 19th, 20th, or 21st century writers whom we find ourselves trying to collect, or about the subject areas in which we become interested, but I concentrate on authors not subjects in this talk. In fact, I think my implicit message is not only dispiriting, however, I also find it, and quite contrarily, downright liberating. In a world where not even Dryden is safe from the vast decay of once commonplace evaluation and interest, then it's true, we can never be wholly right. But it is at least equally likely that we can never be wholly wrong either. Indeed, just as the theoretical revolution freed literary study from the tyranny of the canonical, in a world where everything is a text after all, then anything can be taught, so too the realization that fashions change makes it possible to collect, usefully to collect, anything and anyone. Danielle Steele? Why not? Harlequin romance is too late. Books have already been written. John Grisham, local author of note. The New York Times, everyone's favorite and indeed necessary arbiter of good taste, has already carried an article by David Mamet, a certifiable contemporary genius, and I think I mean certifiable in a wide variety of senses here, <laughs> informing a doubtless eager Times readership that none of the so-called literary authors ordinarily valorized in the current literary press will have the staying power of a Patrick O'Brien, a Scott Turow, or a John Grisham. The humble genre novel, sometimes full of genius, for those of you who think I may be making this up, January 17, 2000. My task today is to suggest that there can be little doubt in the context of such changed attitudes that many new and unusual collecting directions remain for book collectors to explore. Far from mere residue, they may even be exciting. I've chosen one very specific example to suggest briefly and as a kind of Forschweise why. You all know as I do, that many other people in our field, notably the writers collected in John Cotter's 1934 anthology, New Paths and Book Collecting, and in Gene Peters' 1979, Son of New Paths and Book Collecting, Collectible Books, Some New Paths, long ago made some new directions, not only well-worn, but also well-blazed paths. I intend to follow in the distant wake of those writers who, in Cotter and Peters described potential new paths in book collecting, but I'm going to take a somewhat oblique path towards that goal. I begin 
not with description, but with a story, or more accurately, part of a story. Set north of the Ohio River, in the area where Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky come together, this story takes place in the years before the War of 1812. The part of it I'm going to tell opens with Parson Donaldson, a Presbyterian minister on his way to Cincinnati, then a village of about 2,000 people. Riding his nag, he is, when we meet him, deeply engrossed in his own thoughts, eagerly engaged in laying out a speech with which he intended to rout false doctrines and annihilate forever incipient fanaticism, by which he means both progressive new side and zealous Presbyterians and ranting ungrammatical circuit riders, that is, Methodists. The fate of Zion seemed to Donaldson to hang upon the weight and cogency of the speech which he meant to deliver at Cincinnati. Riding along, accompanied by these important thoughts, the parson happens to pass, without noticing him, a young man from his own village named Morton Goodwin. Morton is about to be hanged for a crime, horse thievery, that, as it happens, he did not commit. His senses, undistracted by the joys of theological disputation and sharpened by the looming prospect of their own immediate demise, Morton does see the parson, however, and shouts out for his aid. His shouts come at just that moment when the parson had reached the portion of his argument in which he triumphantly proved that his new side friends, however unconscious they might be of the fact, were of necessity Pelagians and hence guilty of fatal error. Donaldson is so excited by his theological meditations that he fails completely to hear Goodwin's cries and as a result, but I don't want to spoil anyone's evening by telling a sad story. A nice man, though anxious to hang Morton and get the unhappy business over with, does go after the parson at Morton's most earnest entreaty and returns with him to the site of the lynching in progress. Donaldson recognizes as Morton's the horse that the young man had been accused of stealing, and so Morton lives. Yet, Morton's punishment, if I may use that word, is not entirely over. In a little while, Morton sat on his horse listening to some very earnest words from the minister on the sinfulness of gambling and Sabbath breaking, which, unlike horse thievery, are two sins that Morton has indeed recently practiced. But Mr. Donaldson, having heard the Methodistic excitement in the Hisawachi settlement, slipped easily to that and urged Morton not to have anything whatever to do with this mushroom religion that grew up in a night and withered in a day. In fact, the old man delivered to Morton most of the speech he had prepared for the presbytery on the evils of religious excitements. Then he shook hands with him, extracted a promise that he would go directly home and, with a few seasonable words on God's mercy in rescuing him from a miserable death, he parted from the young man. I've taken this story, only a few of the incidents that take place in the 17th chapter 
Deliverance, a title that James Dickey also liked, from the book in which I read it. That book is a novel, so the story doesn't even have the virtue of truth. It's just a story. The novel, The Circuit Rider, A Tale of the Heroic Age, was written by Edward Eggleston, who, when he published it with Charles Scribner's sons in 1874, had long previously left his native Indiana and was living in what was still the city and not yet the borough of Brooklyn. There he was for a while himself a minister. Some of you may know Eggleston, although I bet that not many of you do. One of his other books is The Hoosier Schoolmaster. It remains in print in a paperback edition published by the Indiana University Press in a series called, oddly, The Library of Indiana Classics. One of my colleagues at Penn assigned the book to her class. I noticed it in a bookstore, thought, gee, I've never heard of this one. Bought it, took it home, planned to look at it for 10 seconds, put it on the shelf for a very rainy day, and then made a fatal error, not Methodism. I started to read it. To my surprise, I loved it. After I'd finished, I toddled my aging bod to the floor of my library where we keep our English and American literature, found my way to the Egglestons and read some more and some more, and kept on liking what I read, what I read. This all must sound very roundabout, perhaps, but I think really it isn't. How do we find new areas to collect, personally or institutionally, and what is the point of collecting anyway? Eggleston hit me at the right time. I'd recently done some traveling in Indiana. There, in downtown Indianapolis, on a sunny June afternoon, two miles south of the intersection of I-65 and I-70, heading northbound, <coughs> heading northbound in the fast lane, I encountered, in mid-leap, as he was jumping the median strip, after having successfully negotiated three lanes of southbound traffic, Bambi. This was not a meeting, I am sorry to have to tell you, which did Bambi any good at all. It also came very close to opening up three good positions at major research libraries in California, New England, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It is certainly fair to say that Indiana made an impression on me at that time. It made a different impression a few days later. In Madison, a town on the banks of the Ohio River, my traveling companion and I returned from a late and surprisingly delicious dinner, ambling back along the river, watching and listening to barge traffic in the darkness. I lacked the skill to evoke what walking along the Ohio River on an evening like that meant to me, a New York City native who occasionally still suspects that everything else really is Hoboken, but who, a first-generation American, both of whose parents were born in Europe, also feels as if he is forever embarked on an exploration of the United States. Some time later, I found myself speaking with Emeritus Penn Professor of English, Gerald Wales, who mentioned that he was working on a series of studies, perhaps to culminate in a book about Indiana writers. Gerald is both a Hoosier and himself an Indiana novelist. 
I was not only surprised to think that I didn't think this idea completely loopy, but was also intrigued enough by it to follow up on the Eggleston's I had now read and to branch out to reading other Indiana writers. Indiana writers. Good grief, you may be thinking. He cannot be serious. I regret disappointing you. I am serious. Hoosiers is my title. Hoosier literature is what I mean to praise. Whatever can have possessed me. Although my father, like my mother, was born in Europe, the exploration of America that I describe myself as undertaking is one he undertook before me. When he grew up, his specialty was American literature, a subject he taught in secondary schools and in university. A very good boy, I chose as my form of Oedipal Rebellion to study English literature instead. Take that dad, I must have thought, or words to that effect. I doubt that the geezer was especially perturbed by my wee little declaration of independence, and it sometimes seems to me that I have spent the rest of my life discovering that he was right after all. I suppose that's the reason I picked up the Hoosier schoolmaster when I ran into it in the first place, and even, to my eventual consternation, read it. Consternation? because I loved it. Although neither in theme, style, nor those aspects of literature I have been taught to call literary, was this a book I ought to have liked. Eggleston published it in 1871, three years before The Circuit Rider. Its setting is not the pre-1812 Ohio frontier, but rather rural Indiana around 1850. A young man comes to a school district to crack some sense perhaps even some education, into the thick skulls of the local turkeys, his culture versus their rustic bestiality. It's episodic. It's melodramatic. Its characters are starkly good or bad. What's to like? Well, for one thing, I learned things from it. Eggleston views Indiana as the West, a point of view now very hard to recover, but one that, as I read the book, seemed valid, or at least interesting. His Old West closely resembles the new Trans-Mississippi West that tends to be all that nowadays gets remembered. I also liked Eggleston's evocation of the values of muscular Christianity as a force that both civilized the American frontier and helped to form a significant aspect of the American national character early in our history. Not myself Christian, I could in one sense hardly care less about this second point. As an American interested in the history of his country, however, I was fascinated. I'd known this stuff intellectually, of course. Anyone who takes a class in American history knows it. I'd never felt it before, however, and from that point of view, Eggleston made a difference. I might add that a person of unbelievably low taste, I also liked Eggleston's stories. What can I say after I've said, duh? Um, by the time I got to Eggleston's much more explicitly Christian, The Circuit Rider, I was ready. 
How shall I make you understand this book, reader of mine? Eggleston apostrophizes us at the beginning of chapter 25 of that later book, who never knew the influences that surround a Methodist of the old sort. How could I make you perceive the possibility of a religious fervor that was as a fire in the bones? You have never been a young Methodist preacher of the olden time. True enough. And I never will be either, although I am enchanted to note that after he had taken a tour of Penn's special collections department, someone once asked me if I'd ever been a hellfire and damnation preacher. Um, And I'm not even making that up. (laughs) For the past two and a half years, I've been reading and, dare I confess it, buying Indiana writers. But my point is not to urge you to collect Indiana writers. They're actually not a new collecting field anyway, but they do provide representative examples of what I really am speaking about. First, how do we decide on subjects to collect? Desultory reading, the willingness to pick up and dip into odd books that cross our paths are For me, at any rate, the primary way in which I discover my interests. How could I know that I might be interested in Indiana writers without reading one or two or five or eight of them? My assumption here is that a collecting field in which one is not interested misses the point. This stuff should be fun. And it should be fun not only because of the thrill of the chase, but also because once the beast is in hand, it's a lion, not a shrew. It doesn't matter whether it's a lion only for you. I really don't expect many folks to find Indiana writers per se their cup of tea, but if for you it's not a lion but a shrew, then it's time to hunt another beast. Second, what do we collect for? Perhaps some of us do collect just for the thrill of the chase. If, knowing ourselves, we know that to be our case, then old fields are really just as good as new fields. Any difficult hunt will do. But the hunt motive, I believe, can satisfy only in part. Those collectors build the most satisfying collections whose objects were not only interesting to acquire, but also become the bases of scholarship and learning sources, that is, for the cultivation of new knowledge. They may even make new knowledge possible by defining a field and making it an arena of collecting and inquiry both, as hitherto it had not been. We gather things together because we think that a whole may illuminate things that parts cannot. As the extremely eccentric but very interesting collector Michael Zinman has pointed out in what he calls the Zinman critical mess theory. If you accumulate enough of anything together, at some point, the accumulation takes on a life of its own and one of importance too. Your accumulation will enable you to learn things you could not otherwise have known and might even produce something of value. (coughs) Collecting, in short, ought to be fun. 
it ought also to be an intellectual exercise. Its purpose, the creation of a gestalt which would, could not have been comprehended before the collection came into existence. My Hoosiers wrote stories, novels, and poems that provide more than any history can provide, a, a point that I'm actually stealing from Sidney's Apology for Poetry. Nonetheless, as literature, these Indiana writers and their works are, like almost all so-called regional American writers and literature, my real topic, badly neglected. It is, I know, a broad generalization, yet I believe it to be true that on the whole, and I think Virginia offers an unusual exception to this rule, on the whole, American history and literature are not broadly constructed collecting fields, but rather quite narrowly constructed. Thus, for example, Americana collections tend to concentrate on what are perceived to be the two main heroic periods of, Mer of American history. First, the era of initial voyages and travels, and second, the era of Western overland expansion. A few special topics attract collecting attention, notably the Revolution and, of course, the Civil War. Topics such as African-American history, abolition and slavery, various wars, Native Americans and various immigrant cultures, Irish, Jewish, and more recently Asian, attract additional attention. They are joined of late by collectors interested in, say, the growth of women's suffrage or, more generally, women's rights, or the culture of the 1960s. American literature is conceived on an even more severely constipated basis than its history. And I think with complete lack of critical self-consciousness about these restrictions. Essentially, if a book by an American writer doesn't concern the eastern seaboard, the California coast, or a very few interior places like, let us say, Chicago, it might as well not exist. Indiana is distinctly out of that orbit of guaranteed significance, so are a lot of places. And outside the arena of modern firsts, or partly outside it, collectors pay as little attention to the bulk of such literature from the margins as do reviewers, academics, and it sometimes seems institutional and private book buyers and readers as well. <coughs> We all know, of course, that this is an era in which enormous amounts of critical scholarly and reading attention are being paid to, pre to previously marginalized writers, especially women. Even such long-dismissed regionalists as Willa Cather, a Nebraska writer long a specialized taste only, have benefited from this boom, and Cather herself is one of the women whose newly attained canonical status has been proclaimed by her inclusion in the Library of America series. Are any Indiana women writers recipients of comparable reassessment and republication? In fact, can anyone name a female Indiana writer? I'm, to I'm tempted to develop here an excursus on female Indiana writer Jean Stratton Porter, but she is just one more instance 
<coughs> and I have many of them, of writers whose interest has gone unnoticed by a literary and academic establishment that has, it seems to me, lost much of its capacity for old-fashioned curiosity. Knowing in advance that there's nothing to find, we do not bother to look. Particularly do we not look among the discarded old books of our own past. In fact, inclusion in relegation to the ranks of the merely regional has not proven a blessing for most women writers, despite the current levels of attention to which they seem to have reached. In theory, the margins are now areas of intellectual interest and critical concern. In truth, because most academics have the intellectual curiosity of weak old mackerel and in any case find it easier to teach what they have themselves been taught, the vast and disturbing changes that canon warriors are so quick to discern as among the causes for the intellectual disarray of the modern university are almost nowhere to be seen. The rhetoric of change serves only to appall conservatives while at the same time it masks a dull and unreflective sameness to the curriculum that dynamite itself might do little to dislodge. Or, to put this another way, we, we collectors, we academics, we librarians, we readers, behave as if American literature were so vast an arena of riches that we can afford to throw most of it away. My father, for whom America's literature was a vast arena of riches to be explored and savored along with the country from which that literature had arisen, would have been amazed by this indifference. I doubt that he would have understood it. I certainly don't understand it at all myself. I'm not proposing Indiana writers per se as a new path for collectors. I have used them instead as representatives of American regionalists generally. Writers of the kinds of books I called here last year dead books, books that have, been fallen into, that have fallen into oblivion are rarely, if ever read, even by so-called specialists, are relegated even by large research libraries to off-site storage facilities, literal margins, but which might, if recovered, offer real rewards. Who will do that recovery? Academics? Don't hold your breath. I must emphasize that my Hoosiers, and I have many, many more of them than I've mentioned here, that this is a severely shortened version of a appallingly longer version of this paper. <coughs> These Hoosiers whom I've mentioned are examples only. Collectors who explore the past of their own region or of a region in which they merely have some curiosity will discover a wealth of possible approaches to that region. Fiction, poetry, and drama, of course, but also bindings. I'm reminded by seeing two different copies, Grosset and Dunlap and Bob's Merrill, of a Meredith Nicholson novel in the collection that, um, well, I no longer remember which case it is here, but Meredith Nicholson is an Indiana writer whom I've, I've cut out of this talk, though I find myself reinserting him anyway. 
Um, an Indiana writer who, when he died in 1947, had a reputation that was simply astonishing. And so far as I can tell, at least to the degree that circulation in my own library records survive, hasn't circulated since about 1939. Um, the war must have cut into the ability of people to spend time reading Meredith Nicholson. And after the war was over, when the man died, his circulation simply dropped out of sight. Is he a good writer? I think he actually is. Um, though House of a Thousand Candles, which is the Grosset and Dunlap, Bob's Merrill, is not, I would argue, one of the better Meredith Nicholson's that I've encountered. Um, but Bindings offers itself another approach to such writers and to such regional exploration. Children's books, historical fictions, illustrations, travels, memoirs, association copies, and the thrill of chasing not only books that are occasionally so magnificently insignificant that they cannot be found for love or money, but also may occasionally illuminate the American historical and literary past. I think that this is a project that deserves attention from American collectors and from American collecting institutions. The prospect of contributing to a reevaluation of what constitutes the corpus of American literature should itself be an additional attraction. So should the prospect of providing primary materials far too often neglected by institutional and private collectors to assist in making possible just that kind of reevaluation. I know of only one really good study of a regional writer. That's Louis Renz's book on main writer Sarah Orne Jewett's tiny story, A White Heron. There may be others. I doubt it. Is that one study enough? I doubt that, too. The truth is that bad writers get bad critics. If we know they're bad, we leave them for the second and third and fourth rate to work on. And in any case, despite the occasional bibliography, often the basic tools permitting the creation of relevant collections and providing scholars with the necessary preliminary facts are not easily found. For every seven writers in Russo and Sullivan's bibliography of Crawfordsville, Indiana writers, dozens of other Indiana writers remain in the bibliographical wilderness. The collections and the tools to help tame that wilderness do not yet exist. In short, lots of aspects of this field suggest that it might be fun, including the chances it offers to slice it in umpty dozen different ways. It might also offer the opportunity to collect something that is, too often for an American audience, still rich and often very strange, America's own literature. Thank you.